you're listening to Changemakers with me, Michael Heyman. Now joining me today are Maggie Miller and Hannah Noakes, founders of Magnify Impact, putting the power of purpose to work by helping companies supercharge their profitability through social impact. In a world of abundant resources, Maggie and Hannah ask, why can't these be used for the good of all to create shared value in the world? And it's this question and more that the pair are answering in a new book, Magnify Your Impact, Powering Profit with Purpose. Maggie and Hannah, welcome to Changemakers. A real pleasure to have you both on the show. And I have to say congratulations on your new book, Magnify Your Impact, Powering Profit with Purpose. Now, I'm going to come straight to you, Hannah, to to land the book for us. But I would, in so doing, invite you to pick up on something you actually said in the book, that as we pen this book, the world shifted under our feet. Give us a little sense of where you picked up the story and what this book was all about. Yes. So Maggie and I actually started the journey to write this book in July or so of 2020 when, you know, COVID had just begun and work slowed down for us a bit. And we were kind of looking around saying, you know, what can we do that's meaningful during this time? And we had been interested in the idea of writing a book together, but you know, didn't really have a timeline for that. And as things go, (laughs) within two weeks, we had signed a contract with Forbes Books and we were off and running. And it was just such an interesting time because we had, you know, this space to think about what we wanted to share, but also not really knowing what the future would hold. And so we were writing it from our experience, but trying to look forward to the future. And it was just a very interesting place to be. Mm. Now, Maggie, you and I obviously know each other. The, my challenge is how do, I, how do I interview you without laughing? But I am going to try my best <laughs> at it. But I felt when I, when I read this book, I thought it was one part case maker, one part a how to, but also a why to do this in terms of being a much more kinetic business, energy-led business, a much more purpose-led business. Is, is that the right takeout for the reader, do you think, in terms of what they're going to get when they actually get into the book? Absolutely. Well, first, you know, I love being with you and, and love the leader that you are as well. So I'm so happy to be with you, but you, you've got it right there. So the action part of the book, I think is really important to us. As Hannah described, while we penned the book at the beginning of COVID, I think everybody at that time was saying to themselves, what can I do to contribute? You know, obviously, how do I keep myself safe? But is there anything I can do to contribute? And so we called all our company clients and we just said, hey, like one foot in front of the next. What can you do to use your own superpowers to use the the business abilities and talents and unique positioning of your company to do something right now? And so I think that flavor really found itself into the book. We want companies to take action Mm. and to enliven their cultures. I think a culture, and I know we'll get into that discussion, but company cultures obviously have shifted through this time, but cultures of companies are also very young. And so we need to address those things by really getting into action orientation. Now, Hannah, one of the things you take aim at the book is is purpose speak. You you know, you you talk a lot about the kind of words that are not followed up by action. But Mm -hmm. uh, but I felt also there was there's a really lovely descriptor that purpose is the navigation system for a company. Values are the engine in terms of where people are thinking about purpose in their own lives 
lives or, or within their own business. Can you give us a kind of working sense of what is it they should be thinking about in terms of that navigation system? We like to think of purpose as synonymous with legacy. Where do you want to see your company in 100 years? What do you want people to say about you in your retirement speech? You know, what do you want people to see about your family if looking at you from the outside? So it's all about what is reality versus what actions you're taking or what you say you're going to do. So the navigation system for the company just really is just a way to think about that. That's the the underpinning thinking about not just today, but what effects will your actions today have? hundred years from now. Mm. I mean, Maggie, the, the, the book is unashamedly making the case that you can be a more profitable business, a better business by harnessing your purpose. And that actually, that that is a good thing. A lot of people will turn around and say, well, actually, that is the problem that actually purpose should be about sacrifice, it should be about contribution, it should be about maybe as much as about what you give up as what you gain. But what, what's your riposte to that? Well, I, you know, to to your first point, we think that purpose and profit in the book are an electrical current. We say that all the time, an AC current that runs both ways. So profit is fed by purpose and purpose is fed by the profit of the company. Our case is that if you are using your business superpowers, as we'll talk about your unique abilities, talents, skills, services, the position of your company, you have an underpinning of purpose, then you have the opportunity to deepen every stakeholder relationship that you have. Stakeholders are your ultimate source of value. Without stakeholders, you have nothing. Mm. And so our position in the book is that you can use purpose as another lever of your relationship to deepen those relationships with your employees, your team, your customers, your business suppliers, people in your industry, and so on. So we talk a lot about that as deepening relationship with stakeholders. That's probably the most important point of how that electrical current runs. And I suppose that that runs through, Hannah, in terms of the, the businesses that you have pulled out as, as case studies, but also businesses to draw inspiration from. And they're not all the usual suspects in the, in the sense of businesses that are, are, are purpose leaders. I mean, a lot of these are general businesses that seem to have wanted to do something different. I mean, presumably that was an intentional choice to make this a much more general book for, for a lot of different people to read something into, was it? Yeah, we tried to come up with lots of different examples. So that no matter what maturity is your is the reader's business that you could locate yourself inside one of those examples and so a lot of varying industries varying you know years of maturity different types of products some of which may be considered you know purpose driven products and some maybe aren't you know the hope is that with all of these examples that you'll find something that you can relate to and you know we we chose companies that are doing some element of this well but they may not be doing everything well and we're not necessarily holding them all up as a gold standard so well i mean so you use this phrase going behind the curtain i mean you know when, when you actually sort of got there i mean what did you find in that in that wonderful wizard of oz 
type type <laughs> world. Was it good leadership? Was it was it sort of inspiring leadership, or or, or you know you, t- you also talked about you know perhaps something that wasn't the gold standard? But tell us about the good, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. Well, I I'll just say to that I love that visual, and you know generally what we find across the board with every company that we've worked with is that the leadership of the company has good intentions. They are generally purpose-driven in their personal lives. They are altruistic. They want to use the resources of their companies for good. They just might not know yet how to do that. And Mm. so what we find is a lot of reactive, scattered responsiveness to the needs around them, which is not a bad thing, but they're not able to collect uh, stories or metrics about what they're actually accomplishing. And so it feels just very scattershot. And so we help them bring some focus to it and say, you don't necessarily need to be spending more money or spending more time, but what you do need to do is to go deeper and not quite so broad. I mean, Maggie, one of the things I, I took out of this book was that it, it's a motivating read. It's a fun read as well as a detailed read. I love the Roger Staubach quote that there are no traffic jams along the extra mile. I mean, this got me thinking is that actually a part of the reason for writing this book was that these are things you can do now. You don't have to go into to grand strategy when you're thinking about inspiring, igniting, unifying. Those are all part of those, I guess, those superpowers you were talking about, which are which are there to be got hold of, are they? Yeah. So I think it's really important to realize, you know, even to touch back on the question you asked Hannah, that you can do something now. You can, again, move one foot in front of the other in terms of creating impact inside your company. If that means having a lunch with your employees to ask what what's important to them. You know, again, we wanted companies to be able to locate themselves inside of here. And many of these small, medium-sized companies don't have the resources of an international or a large company. And quite frankly, a large international company or a, a public company is going to have standards that they have to play by. They're going to have to have a seat at the table by doing certain things. Mm. Investors are looking at that. Standards are looking at that and they need to make those minimal contributions to the world by means of being a business and being in in the world. But small and medium businesses have the same opportunity to make impact. And so we really wanted to direct at those those companies to say, look, you don't have to wait till someday to have some huge budget to have everything in place. Your readiness can start at this level and you can take a step at this level to deepen a relationship with the stakeholder or to set the sandbox of what you want your impact to look like. And so we really wanted people to find themselves in here, as Hannah said, and and to start setting their own stake in the ground so that they could be moving that at each year. I mean, to your point, I mean, this is something that quite often puts off companies from addressing questions like core purpose, which is it, it feels mm-hmm. such a big challenge. When you were writing the book, w- were those small firms in your mind or, or was it the big corporations? Because, you know, a lot of this is about well, what can you do? What, what, what was who was the who were you writing it for? We really wrote this for mid-sized company leaders and below in particular. While large corporate leaders can get something out of the book, certainly we wanted to give very specific actionable guidance to that mid-sized company leader or that entrepreneur who's looking to say, where do I start? 
And so we really gave them just, you know, a simple framework step-by-step for how to move towards a focused, effective impact strategy, and specifically how to engage those particular stakeholder groups in that journey and and deepen those relationships. Now, Maggie, I, I took another theme out of this was that for you both as authors, togetherness matters, that mm-hmm. actually when you look at, well, why would you do this is because actually, you know, we are, we are better together. I mean, I, I love the quote that the goal is not simply for you to cross the finish line, but to see how many people you can, can inspire to run with you, the Simon Sinek quote. I mean, at the, in a world that feels very divided at the moment, quite often, you know, from the kind of, you know, from families through to working environments. I mean, one read of this book is that it is the case for togetherness, I felt, in terms of why that matters right now. Absolutely. I think the whole idea of collective impact is something that we wanted to touch on in the book, both within industry, um, in your community and neighborhood, inside your families. Again, the whole idea of what is my purpose or legacy? What is, are my own powers? Who are my people? And what kind of impact do I want to have on the world? That applies to anybody. And we do want people to find, leaders to find themselves, leaders of families to find themselves in the book, all sorts of people to find themselves in the book. But the idea that you don't, that you can turn outward to your stakeholder circle and your family, that can be, you know, your relatives, your family, your children. What do we want to set our goals and intentions towards making a difference together? In an industry, we talked a lot about industry working together and how people could make a difference together. We have some really great examples of COVID collective impact during 2020 and how companies work together. So collective impact is a huge theme in the book. Mm -hmm. We really hope that people take away for their own selves and their companies. And, and I thought with that in mind is that it was interesting when you when you um, mentioned the Mark Benioff, uh, the CEO of Salesforce quote, that capitalism as we know it is dead. Because of course, you know, when you look at the, the original meaning of the word company, it was how people came together to break bread. You know, the, the, the idea is, is about how you shared in abundance. I mean, it's part of this book about, you know, to leaders that actually this is no longer a, a kind of, opportunity or an invitation this is just a baseline obligation in terms of the the difference you you make Hannah well starting with the leader themselves I think leadership can be a can be a very lonely place and particularly if a company is growing quickly you know maybe you started small but you're you're now growing quickly you know you have to be all things to all people but you don't get time to have direct one-on-one connections And certainly we know that we've lost a lot of that in the last 18 months. And so the idea of, you know, bringing people along on the journey, and we, I think we say in the book, you know, you don't want to sit at an empty table as a leader. You want to have people around that table with you. And that's part of the legacy that you're leaving, not only as a company, but the legacy that you're leaving as, as a leader, you know, thinking about what they're going to say about you in your retirement speech. And so that's been a big theme for us is, figuring out how we can help leaders, you know, lead in a more collective way through impact. And that whole idea mm. of company, like you said, I think is, is spot on. But there is still a cynicism 
about this. It might well be more softly spoken, but you pick up on it in the book. You talk about the Friedman doctrine, that the business of business is business, that the kind of things that you're that you're talking about are the kind of social costs. But your case is that this is about serious business advantage, Maggie, in terms of actually... So if you're speaking to a doubter right now who might be listening to an interview like this and go... Yeah, but this is for this. Yeah, you know, this is for FMCG brands or retail brands. It's not. <laughs> yeah. It's not for me as a manufacturer or what have you. I mean, what what is what is the repost to to that kind of view? Do you think? Yeah. So my opinion, our opinion in the book is that this is no longer an invitation. This is a necessity for your company to consider. I know you asked that before, and that is the position in the book that it is a seat at the table. It's it's not a, can I consider this? It's you should consider this. The main reasons, there's many in there, but one that I often bring up in conversations with doubters is the idea of the workforce changing. So in the book, we talk a lot about the millennial and the Generation Z workforce, millennials being the kind of 25 to 40 somethings, and the Gen Zers being technically about 10 to age 20, 24. So they're entering the workforce as kind of first generation workers. The millennials are taking on management and leadership positions now. They will be 75% of the workforce in 2025, just Mm. a couple of years away. So this new generation that we once talked about is really taking over our workforce. They will be the leaders in the workforce. And if you read any Deloitte millennial study or Pew research study, they go over it over and over again. This generation says, we care about impact. A company's reason for being has to be about more than profit. And the numbers are astounding. They're in like the 85 to 88%. So workforce is a huge consideration for every industry that I think leaders need to consider and why this is a really big thing for culture. And I suppose that that generational change, I mean, I was was reading about about geriatric millennials in in, in sort of preparation for this interview is that actually, you know, this is not about thinking about, you know, this is what the next generation, this is the generation that's here right now, Hannah, isn't it? In terms of, you know, not only the kind of, you know, the kind of the next gen, but actually the leaders, the the leaders in waiting. It's here. And uh, those, those leaders are looking for, you know, something deeper than the transaction. You know, they really want, to be inspired in their work. And, you know, we tend to work with a lot of, for lack of a better term, unsexy industries, financial services, insurance, those kinds of things, um, in addition to other industries, because those industries, you know, they need good leadership coming up the ranks, and they're not necessarily drawing the same interest because they don't do anything very exciting, you know? Mm -hmm so to speak. And so this is another dimension to not only your external brand with your customers, but your internal brand with your talent and your future talent, that employment brand. It's a really important component. Now, we've all heard of chief executives and chief operating officers and lots of other sort of C-suite jobs, starting with a C, but I I would imagine many haven't heard of chief optimists and chief troublemakers. (laughs) Which one's which? And and tell us about it. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I, Hannah, am the optimist. You know, I uh, have always been an optimist. I always tend to look for the good in people. I'm probably a little too trusting 
actually. And, you know, we just thought this would be a fun way to kind of differentiate our personalities and and really it stuck. And Maggie, she's definitely the troublemaker. I was going to say, it makes it's absolutely no surprise there, Maggie, but tell us what a, what a chief troublemaker does. <laughs> yeah, so, well, first of all, our titles are such a great conversation starter with like really big C, C-suite kind of folks. They oh, We get so many comments on our, on our titles, like, how can I be that? You know, so it's really a fun conversation starter. But yes, the troublemaker is an ode to my never ending curiosity. So I'm about probing life. I want to be on a plane, checking something out, talking to somebody who's serving food or, you know, sitting on the beach. I'm kind of always chatting with everybody I meet. And so I'm always kind of probing the curiosity of life. And so I get myself a little bit trouble that way. And then also Hannah is such a like positive soul. Like one of us needs to sort of like yank the rain back and kind of be like, this is BS, you know? And so that's probably me. And so we have like a really healthy tension that way. You know, I I think we do a ton of work together, oftentimes not in the same city. I live in Barcelona half my life. So we're seven hours apart, yanking the reins back and forth. She keeps it positive and and I like to to pull the reins and mix it up a bit. But, but also yeah. it gives it, it gives a nice touch in the book because of course you have the box out from the troublemakers and, and the optimist corner and all these kind of uh, I guess you know n- nice creative touches. But something I do want to say is I mean, obviously you both got Austin in in common. I um I, I had an unforgettable trip there when I was right co-authoring my own book and worked specifically with with Maggie on a on a, a conscious capitalism event with John Mackey, the CEO and founder of, of Whole Foods and. Obviously, a lot of people point to the Austin vibe, keep Austin weird, the kind of the, the, the fact that there is something different about that town and city that that creates this this kind of vibe that we're talking about in terms of a different way to look at, at business. I mean, is that just good PR or is that real? I mean, who, who'd like to go first? Well, I'll say that I think that the roots of Austin um, often are forgotten now, just as young people, younger and younger generations are moving in. But, you know, all Austin's really has started as a college town. It's, you know, the home to the largest university in the state of Texas and that the academic and the entrepreneurship and the creativity that came out of the university, I think, is really the foundation for why Austin is how it is. And certainly the music scene um, and the art, art scene is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And now it's really become just this, you know, tech hub. And so, you know, very entrepreneurial. We have more nonprofit startups than <laughs> I think any other city in the world. Just a place where you can really be successful in starting something new. So I think that that is definitely a valid, you know, way that we're seen. But Austin does have problems too. I mean, the fast growth of this city has has caused a lot of challenges. So it's mm. quite a dichotomy. So there is a dichotomy. But, but I suppose, Maggie, to put to you is that you, know, you you reference yeah. conscious capitalism in, in the book and there is something that people point to that say, well, actually, this this could be a kind of HQ for where 
soulful businesses find their find their purpose i mean is is it i mean you spent a lot of time there i mean what would you talk to people say to people that have have never been there but sort of buy into the mystique of it yeah so i think one of the one most wonderful things about austin is that if you want to create something in austin people support your journey more than any other city i've ever lived in in my life you can come here here to austin and claim hey i want to start a tech business doing xyz and people will pass you around the web of austin contacts without hesitation where as you'll see in some cities people re- will really protect their contacts they don't want to open up their books to you or or bring you into a conversation where Austin is completely opposite. People are like, Hey, I know X, Y, and Z, or I work in the same industry. Let's get coffee and let me give you my secrets and my pitfalls. And so I think there's a real openness that allows people to be creative entrepreneurial I, journeys. I, I, I experienced it. I, I, I caught a cab and the cab driver literally did go through his business plan with me, but that's just, <laughs> always now, now, that, we are, that's regular there. Now we're rapidly running out of time and I want to get a couple of further things in, but it, it strikes me also that when you write when you write a big book like this and, and and having had some experience of it myself is that you go through a journey in in terms of how you how you view the world because of course you're aggregating and bringing together so many different sources and different opinions I guess you've written a book during a pandemic does mm-hmm. that does that supercharge that experience and and I guess if so what have you learned about yourselves well I call it a refining fire. I mean, it really was, is still um, the process of taking all of these things that we knew or thought we knew and all of our experiences and then distilling them into something that we could very clearly teach others. This concept, I think, was very difficult, but it was absolutely um, game changing Mm. for our business. I think for personally, just really getting confident about what what we have to teach and and in going through the process together i think maggie and i you know became certainly closer through the process and we would do you know 40 rounds of edits on one chapter and sometimes we would get punchy late at night and the comments bar on our document would get hysterical because we would just make fun of, you know, the way that we had written something and talk about how stupid it sounded. And, and so it was just a really fun process. I mm. I mean, I, I'm ready to write another one. I don't know if Maggie is. I don't know if my husband will agree, <laughs> she's, but she's dragging me in. <laughs> the sequel beckons. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Michael, I do want to mention, I think, you know, there's during this process of the pandemic and writing a book, I think there was a layer of vulnerability in writing a book anyway. And you know that you wrote a a book. And at some point, you kind of look at this manuscript and you say, I'm going to put this out to the world. And I trust and believe in it. But you know, people, people can comment however they wish to. And I think during the pandemic, you know, we were all so isolated anyway, that it gave you a lot of us a lot of time to like think and refine and sort of sit in front of the fire, so to speak, as I think everybody was doing in many different ways during the past 18 months. And so that shifted us personally as well, I would say we started different people than we came out by nature of the time we were writing it. Well, and alongside that, 
personal journey, Maggie. I mean, in our lockdown list, which accompanies this episode, you talked about the very great sadness of of, of losing your father during the pandemic. And, and you said that it's a really interesting phrase that the compassion I've grown from this grief is a new and better side of me. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So my dad was passing away in March of this year, 2021, right as we were doing kind of the final edits. In fact, interestingly enough, I sat down to do one last pass of edits and it was the only time my siblings had sort of asked me to step away from my dad because he just wasn't going after, you know, eight days sort of in a coma. And I I went to the kitchen table in their room and, and strangely, lovingly, that was when he let go of himself in this like 20 minute period when I was like, rewriting the last thing in the book. And then I I changed the acknowledgements at the end, like I was watching him as I read it. And so I think just the the compassion of, of loss, you, you know, the chief troublemaker, as I described, can be a smirky human at times. And I think COVID as well, like having some own health issues and going through COVID myself and losing my father, like my compassion for people going through loss and change and sorrow and unearthing parts of themselves that they didn't like or wanted to grow through has grown infinitely where I really want to know, like, how are you doing? And I have a gratitude for every single day. So I changed quite a bit there. I never was a bad person, but I think I'm a better person now. I interviewed somebody who described these as brutal gifts, which Mm -hmm. I thought was an incredibly eloquent way of putting exactly that point. Now, you have also left us with some tips for life. Hannah, I'm going to invite you to tell us a little bit about yours. Now, I can read it out or you can tell it tell it to us, which uh, how would you like? Yeah, please remind me. (laughs) You're obviously not living by it every day. But anyway, but you know, your 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 tip for life was a great one. It said, Don't strive for an easy life devoid of problems. Life inherently is full of challenges. When we embrace that, it takes a lot of the pressure off. Turn that into an advice piece for listeners. Well, I just think that I've learned that life is messy. And, you know, as I add more complicating factors into my life with, you know, three children and a business and a book and all of the other things, it's it's just going to continue to get messy and fraught with problems. But many of those problems we're very blessed to have. I'm, you know, blessed to have frustrating morning getting my kids off to school because I have kids to get off to school and they're going to school. (laughs) And so I think it's just reframing a lot of that and just understanding that a lot of problems really stem from blessings, but also what's really a problem. I mean, and that, that is a huge lesson from the last 18 months is just, you know, reframing that we are, we are very fortunate. And just the fact that we can be here with you today is, is a huge blessing. And I hold things much more loosely now. And Maggie, your your tip for life turned into a, a manifesto of, of love and forgiveness, which we are going to put alongside this episode. But last answer to you, a, a sort of a, a brief synopsis of, of the advice of that message. Yeah, sure. So I think love and forgiveness, they're, they're like muscles. You have to work them every day. Forgiveness doesn't just come. It's not just one act or action. And I think you have to 
wake up and, and decide, you know, you don't have to decide what someone did to you is okay, but whatever, whatever hold it has on your back and what kind of freedom do you want in your heart is really important. It has to be worked on every day. Mm-hmm. And then so far as love, I just, I think our job is to wake up and, and electrify our lives. How, you know, who's in front of me and how can I love them well? No matter if it's, you know, someone giving me a coffee or if it's someone who's a friend of mine, um, I think it's so important to know that that's our compass. Mm. And and you say within there as well, life rocks, you should play your song. And what a, what a great tune that that is. And thank mm-hmm. you very much, Hannah and Maggie, for joining me on Changemakers. It's been a real pleasure to hear the story of the book, the message of the book, but also I think the dynamic between you both. And there you have it, Magnify Your Impact, Powering Profit with Purpose, published by Forbes. It's out there, go read it. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaigns firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? Thank you.